0: You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but our nation and our world is changing around us in this generation right now. And one of the things that's been impressed upon me is the strategies that we used to raise up our young people for Christ 20 years ago are no longer sufficient for today. And it actually demands a greater level of investment into them in the early stages to lay spiritual foundations for what they are called to contend for in their generation. That era of just just send them to a Christian college and it'll work out fine has passed us by. And many of our plans really are no longer worthy of the hour in which we live. And so if you're a young person in the room, like maybe 16 to 25, would you just kind of raise your hand and shake it at me real quick, man, I I challenge you guys specifically as you're making plans for next steps for, as you're finishing high school, finishing college, launching into God's plan for your life, invest a year to lay your spiritual foundation strong, literally give a year. It is worth the investment for your future, and Jesus is worthy of that year too. How many of us in the room are parents of people 16 to 25? To me, you are one of the most important people on the earth for what's stewarding what Jesus wants to do in this next generation. And I just encourage you as a parent even to be thoughtful about how am I helping to lay my child's spiritual foundation for what he's calling me into? So even as I'm sharing here today, if you're like, wow, I'm I'm feeling something quickened around this idea of laying that spiritual foundation after the service, just come on up and, and chat with me. We'll talk about it. But I just am so passionate about this for our young people. When I was 23 years old, I found myself on an airplane with my best friend, Matt, sitting next to me, getting ready to land in China. We had volunteered ourselves to go to China for a year to tell Chinese college students about Christ. And I felt absolutely inadequate for what I was supposed to do. I remember feeling so nervous on the airplane as I'm getting ready to land. No one taught me how to be a missionary. I, 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 I can't speak any Chinese at all. I don't know anything about Chinese culture. I, I, I wish I could impress on you how little I actually knew what I was doing. And so we walk into the, the country, and a missionary receives us there and gets us set up. I don't know if anybody in China can speak English at all. And the guy says, Why don't you go up onto the college campus there? Maybe you'll find some college students that can speak English. And so, first Friday, we're in China. We walk through the, the gate onto the college campus, and we're looking around at what's happening. We see this huge sports building, and the quad, kind of the huge open square of the campus, is just milling with hundreds and hundreds of students in some kind of group or activity. So Matt and I kind of sheepishly walk over to the group. We don't know if anyone can understand this, so I kind of tap a guy in the shoulder, and I'm like, what's going on here? I had not yet learned the very important missions principle. If they don't speak your language, it doesn't matter how slow you talk to them. (laughs) But the guy turns around and he looks at me and he goes, well, this is an English corner. This is where we get together to practice our English. So I'm like, sweet. And Matt and I walk into this thing and I'm like, you know, six, five, you know, American looking guy. And these these, these guys are all like, I'm like a minor celebrity. They're like around me, like I'm Taylor Swift. You know, I got like this crowd around me. Matt's got this crowd around him. We're just peppering us with all kinds of questions. They're asking everything. Like, do you have any siblings? You know, they asked, because it was one child policy at that time. Um, I I, I remember they asked, is is your life like the TV show Friends? (laughs) No. Ross, like a little bit, but not, 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 not really. And, uh, and so they're asking these questions. And then one guy in the group, he looks at me and he goes, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? And I kind of freeze for a second because no one's really briefed me on what to do in this situation. I don't know, like, okay, like, can I talk about Jesus? Is this communist China? Is that inappropriate here? I, I don't know what I can even do safely. So I just started sharing my testimony of how Jesus had changed my life and how he'd saved me. And I literally, literally... I'll never forget it until the day I die because as I'm looking around this group of people and in a number of their eyes it was like, I could tangibly see spiritual hunger lighting up. And it was this lean of, I have never heard what you're talking about right now. And I need something like this really badly in my life. Afterwards, the conversation kind of got drawn by questions in another direction. But when the night was over, I just kind of wrote down people's names and phone numbers, and I kind of put like a little mark next to their name if you saw that look in their eye. And over the weeks that followed, Matt and I just started calling people up, being like, Gary, you want to play basketball? wanna you want to grab some lunch? And as we'd meet with people, we would just share simply about how Jesus had changed us. And I began to see college student after college student after college student give their lives to Jesus for the first time. Well, one of the guys we met that first night at that English corner, his name was Ren. I remember he introduced me to, himself to me as Bill Clinton. He's like, cause I, he says, I'm gonna be the president of, of China someday. <laughs> I'm like, okay, ambition, I like that. And, uh, and so afterwards, we called them and we set up lunch and we were having lunch with them at a Chinese restaurant. And as we're eating together, we're just sharing more about how Jesus had changed our lives and start sharing him the gospel with Ren. And like you could see the Holy Spirit was touching him. Like he literally had tears in his eyes as we're talking about it. And it's like, wow, I'm gonna get to see someone come to Christ in China. This is amazing. And, and while I'm in this process, all of a sudden he interrupts the conversation and he goes, wait, 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 wait. Before we go any further, I just want you to know I'm a member of the Communist Party. I remember squeezing Matt's knee underneath the table. I'm like, I, I don't even know what that means. Was that a threat? Like, like well, why, why is he telling it? To, he, you had tears in your eyes. Why are you telling me this now? And so Matt and I kind of backpedal in the conversation a little bit. And I remember afterwards talking and praying with Matt, being like, okay, let's just give Ren space for a few weeks until we understand more what's, what's going on here. Well, it was two weeks later. I remember it was the day after Christmas. We went back to that English corner and we see Ren across the crowd from us. And so he comes over to us. We give him a hug. Hey, long time no see. How you doing? He's like, hey. He said, Matt, told me, guess what? We're like, what? He's like, I became a Christian. I'm like, you became a, we didn't even tell you how to do that yet. <laughs> um, what happened? He's well, it's a serious story. I'm like, okay. And he begins to tell me the stories. He says, I was involved with a girl on campus, and I found out some stuff. So I went down to the health clinic to have some tests done, and I came back HIV positive. Whoa. He said, I, I, I didn't even know what to do. Toby, you don't even understand, but there's a stigma around that in China. It was like, am I going to have to drop out of school? Like, am I going to die? Like, I, I don't even know what's coming now. He's just kind of walking around his campus, numb, and it finally just kind of hits him, and he, he, he runs up the stairs. His dorm room was on the fourth floor of this huge building, runs up the stairs to it, just kind of runs into his room, falls down, his face on his bed, his knees on the floor, and is just weeping. And he said, Toby, while I was crying, I looked up and through my tears on my roommate's bookshelf, I saw a Chinese Bible and I remembered what you told me about Jesus. He said, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I went over, my roommate wasn't a Christian. He was just a religion major. He I, I, I just took the Bible off the shelf and I didn't know what to read or what would help me. He says, you won't believe this. I just flipped it open and I looked down and the words that jumped off the page to me were, you will be healed. Slam that. <laughs> that didn't fit with anything he'd been told his whole life about God being the imagination of Westerners so he opened the Bible a second time looks the words jumping off the page to him I will heal you a third time he randomly opens the scriptures and it's a verse about healing he's like Toby I didn't know what to do we hadn't taught him how to pray or anything so he, he said I just started making promises to God He said, if you will heal me and you're real, I will serve you with my whole life. I'm going to tell my family and friends about you. He said, I'm going to change my birth date to today. We didn't even talk about being born again. He got that all on his own. (laughs) And he he had a scholarship in school. He said, I'll give my scholarship away to someone who needs it more than me. And so as he kind of makes his promises to God, just the peace of God descends on the room and comes upon him, and he falls asleep right in his bed. He wakes up the next morning and goes back into the health clinic for the confirming set of tests on the HIV diagnosis, and it comes back totally clean. He's totally healed. So now he's with me at this English corner. He's like, I'm going to follow Jesus with my whole life. I'm going to tell my family and friends about him. I got a new birthday. I just have one question. Do I have to give my scholarship away? That was between you and God, Brent. I don't even know. You know? And, uh, and I walked away from that meeting and I felt at a way I'd never felt before, just how far Jesus is willing to go to bring one of his lost sons back home. I, I, I felt it at a deeper part of my being that I understood just how extravagant his love is for every one of his lost kids that's out there. I mean, think about it for a second. For Ren to meet him, he had to send these two bozos to the other side of the planet, but, to even have the conversation over a bowl of noodles. And then God had to reach down from heaven himself and break the laws of probability that Wren could open the Bible three times and find something that spoke to his need in his heart and where he was in that moment. And then as his heart turned towards the Lord, the Lord needed to literally reach into the body that he created, take what was the most feared disease at that time and turn it inside out and heal him all the way through his whole being just so Ren could come back home to his father. There is no limit. There is no limit to how far he will go to bring one of his lost sons back home. There is no limit to what he will do to chase down one of his lost daughters that he could have relationship with them. And here's the absolutely wild thing. You don't have to go to China to experience how much God wants to bring his lost kids back home. He wants to teach each of us right here in Bay City. Because all around you, you have neighbors, you have family, you have friends, you have coworkers that God cares about just as much as he cares about Ren. And if he would go that far just to bring one back home, what would he do for my whole family? How far would he go those who live on my street that don't know him yet? What would he be willing to do that those who sit across from me at my workplace would have a chance to know him? There is no limit to how far he'll go. Let's open up the scriptures to look at God's heart for those around us that don't know him yet. Let's open to Matthew chapter 18. As you open up to Matthew 18, we're going to start looking, reading in verse 11. And you may find a curious thing in some of your Bibles. You may find verse 11 is actually down in the margin and not up in the main text. That's because in a few manuscripts, this verse appears in different places in the Gospel of Matthew, but we know it's something Jesus said. It's in multiple other Gospels. Let's read it together, starting in verse 11. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Well, It starts off telling us the, the son of man came to save that which was lost. We, we were from Rochester, New York, originally near Buffalo in Western New York. And one of the cool things about Rochester is it has one of the best children's museums in the whole world. It's called the strong museum of play. It's just absolutely amazing, really fun for kids to go to. And so when we lived there, we had a membership. We'd bring our kids all the time. It was about half an hour from our house. And uh, one time when our kids were younger, we brought them up there and we are, are playing, having a blast, doing all kinds of fun. We eat afterwards, and then we're driving back home, and we're about you know, half an hour away almost to pull into our driveway. And my four-year-old son goes, oh, Goldie! You see, Jordan had this little stuffed golden retriever that was like his most precious thing in the entire world. And in that moment, he realized he had brought it into this museum of play, and he had left it there. Now, this is like hundreds and hundreds of people are in this thing every single day. And so we're like, okay, you turned it, you know, turn around, basically drive half hour back up to the place. And we go in and we say, hey, my son left this thing here. And we are looking, there's just hundreds of people in and out, in and out. And we're like, this is not going to go well. And so we gather all the staff and they're searching in all the ball pit, you know, in all the different places all over this whole thing to find this thing. And After about 15 minutes, one of the staff people comes out and he's holding Goldie. And he brings it and he gives it to my son and jordan squeezes it and grabs it and we go home happy the first time we went up there we were just going to have fun but the second time we went to the museum of play it was for a purpose to save that which was lost when jesus came to earth it was not just to play around when jesus came to earth It was not just something he had to do. He had a purpose that burned through his being for every moment of him leaving heaven to come down to earth and suffer in the things that we suffer in. And it was so he could save those who are lost. That's you. That's me. That's everyone who's met him already. But that's also the thousands of people outside in this community who have not met him yet that Jesus desperately loves, and he came to find just them, and he would have gone to the cross if it would only mean that one person could have relationship with him. He came to seek and save that which was lost. You know, that idea of, of lost, apart from Jesus, every single one of us is lost. And for those of us who have known him for a long time, we can forget that a little bit sometimes, can't we? Sometimes I forget just how broken I was as a high schooler and how absolutely lost I was until Jesus broke into my life and rescued me. And for those of you here that know him, sometimes you just forget a little bit just how lost we were without him. And the more dangerous part of that is it makes us unaware of just how much those around us who don't know him yet actually need Jesus. When I... I was born in Western New York, and so by birth, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And that was basically 25 years of torture growing up. Probably something like being a Lions fan. <laughs> but things have turned around for us all now, haven't they? <laughs> so I grew up, and I was a Bills fan. And you know, So my, my, my Bills, they lost last week to the Chiefs, and so they're out of the playoffs. And so from now on, the rest of the way, I'm officially converting to a Lions fan for this year. And so if you true believers would allow this Gentile to be grafted in for the next three weeks to be a part of what God's doing in this miracle that's happening across the beautiful state of Michigan, I'm beseeching you to let me be a part. Um, So when, when I was, I think I was 10 years old, I went to my very first Buffalo Bills game. When my parents took us, my family was there, we had a bunch of friends with us too. And so we're coming into the game, and as usual, the Bills are losing. And as it gets to the fourth quarter, the Bills, as usual, are losing badly. And so people start exiting the stadium. And so I'm watching, my family's keeping us there still, and I'm watching all these people leave, and it was a week where they handed out commemorative Buffalo Bills Cups. And I'm just watching all these people get up and leave, and leave their absolutely amazing plastic Buffalo Bills Cups all over the stadium. And in my 10-year-old mind, this is a sin against humanity. And so I just kind of walked away from my family and walked down into the stands a little bit. And I just started picking up all these cups that people left behind. You know, it's like, wow, Thurman Thomas, dump out a beer. Wow, Jim Kelly, dump out a soda. You know, and I'm, I'm just collecting all these cups. And so I, I get these cups and I got them. I got a huge stack and I'm going, I'm just having my fun old time getting all these players. And the game ends while I'm doing this. And my parents stand up. My dad goes out the aisle this way. My mom goes out the aisle that way. My dad thinks I'm with my mom. My mom thinks I'm with my dad. And they all start the two-mile walk to the front yard of somebody's house where we parked for $25. And I am just happily picking up cups. And at some point, I realize the game is over. And I look up, and my family's gone. First, I kind of play it cool. Maybe I'm just not looking at the right place. And so I kind of find the right tickets and I go and yeah, my family's definitely gone. And I look back at the entryway into the concourse. and It's just hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands, millions going out through there. And I cannot see a face of anybody in my family anywhere. So I take my cups, you know, I got stacks of them and I walk up the thing and I go out into the concourse. There's thousands of people walking out everywhere. I cannot see anybody that, that I know. And I start freaking out a little bit. Someone told me though, once, if you get lost, you should just sit down and wait for someone to come get you. And so I did. So I just sat down in the concourse and my parents though, they're separate walking to the car. And so it's not until they make the two mile trek to the car that anybody realizes I'm not with them. And so by the time they've done that and they are walking back probably 30, 45 minutes have passed and I'm just sitting there. I watched the whole Buffalo Bill stadium empty out. There was like nobody left. I saw a fancy car come around and Thurman Thomas get in the back of a car. Like that, that literally happened. I'm watching that happen and there's just nobody there. And I remember still to this day, 30 years later, that moment where my dad walked back into the concourse and I stood up and I ran to him and I hugged him and he hugged me tight and he looked at me and he said, don't ever do that again. And then he hugged me tight some more. In that experience, there was kind of two stages to my lostness. First, I was lost. My family had left, but I had no idea whatsoever. I was happily collecting cups and, you know, getting my things and getting the players and going about my business. And then there was that moment where I looked back and I saw, and I realized my lostness for the first time. All around us in our family, our friends, are people in both states. There's people that are happily going about life, collecting cups and whatever they need to do, going through things. They don't even realize that they're lost. They think everything's great, but unbeknownst to them, they are on their way to a Christless eternity. And then there's other people around us that they realize they're lost. They know they're broken. They know they're missing something. They know they desperately need something. They just don't know what it is. But here's the reality whether they're in group number one or group number two, there's really no difference at all because both are lost. And sometimes, you know, we try and convince ourselves that the lostness of those around us is not really that big a deal. Do you guys get mosquitoes in Bay City in the summer? Okay. You said like that, like mosquitoes really are a problem here. So in western New York where I grew up, we get lots of mosquitoes, lots of lakes around that area. And so summertime, you know, you'll, you'll have this moment, right? You're at a barbecue, you're hanging out with friends, and it becomes dusk. And the mosquitoes just kind of descend, right, in that moment. And you're talking with your friend, and there will be a moment that happens where we're talking, and as we're chatting, this little mosquito flies and lands right on my friend's neck right there. And when this happens to you, you find out that you're one of two different types of people. If you're like me, you don't say anything. Because you don't want to make the conversation awkward. I don't want to slap the person. I don't want to make them start doing a little dance or something like that, trying to get rid of the mosquito. It's not going to kill them. It's a mosquito. All they're going to get is a little itch afterwards. And so you just kind of continue the conversation and, and hope it's not too bad for them. My wife, however, falls into the other camp. If that mosquito lands on you in that moment, she is going to murder that thing. And she will certainly injure you in the process, too. <laughs> Right there, you know, right, right in the side of the neck. she take that thing right out. You know, it's then you're like, <laughs> I can't breathe. And, and, uh, and she will do that because she is going to deal with that problem right there. And, and some of us, when we consider the lostness of our friends, we think of it like it's a mosquito problem. Yeah, I, I don't want to make the conversation awkward. I, I, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable here. I, 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 I'd say something, but it might just be a little weird. Listen, your friends that don't know Christ do not have a mosquito problem. They have a black widow crawling up their arm. The issue is absolute in the deepest sense of the word, life and death. And I can try and convince myself it's just a mosquito problem, but when someone has a black widow crawling up their arm, no longer are you thinking about, I'll make it awkward or they might be a little silly to say something right now or I feel uncomfortable with this. No, you are saving the life of your friend no matter what it takes. And the Lord wants to remind us today about the reality of lostness and what it means to those that we love. And it's so interesting. Jesus goes on to share this story here of this picture of the sheep. And the way he says it is always interesting to me. Let's read it again. He says, what do you think? If if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 of the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And the way he says it, you can tell that everybody listening to him is like, of of course, Jesus, that's exactly what we'd do. But when I read it, I'm like, no, that's not what I would do. I would stay with the 99 sheep. Like, why are you leaving your 99 sheep to go try and find one that wandered off? You're going to risk so much more than you can possibly save. Because I don't think like a shepherd from the first century. But when you study and look at what's going on in the situation, it becomes more clear. For one, for a shepherd in that time period, Their sheep are their treasure. Like they literally are their life savings. There's no bank. There's not cash. He doesn't have gold stored up somewhere. This is his future. This is his treasure. This is what he has spent his entire life on. And so losing a sheep is not like, ah that's just like one of 100 animals or something like that. It's like, this is like losing a big part of my life savings when one of these animals wanders off. It's precious to him. But it's not even just precious to him, it's, it's, it's personal to him. It talks in the Bible about how they have a different name for each one of the sheep and the sheep know their voice and they spend more time with these sheep than they spend with their own children. And there's this affection, this care towards them. But at the same time, the shepherd understands the danger of what's happening in this situation. I'm not sure for you when you've read this in the past, but when I've read it, I kind of imagine there was just kind of like one like little bit of spacey sheep and he's just like kind of wandering off in the green hills, you know, like sniffing flowers or something like this over here while the rest of the sheep are going to the pen. And it's like, oh no, where did Baba go? But That's not what's happening in this situation. In the hilly terrain of Palestine, it's very common for a sheep as he's walking on these steep hills to miss a step and tumble or fall. And the way a sheep's body is designed, if it falls, it lands on its back, and it's like a turtle, and it can't get back up again. Like There's a term for it. It's called a cast sheep. And a sheep gets cast, and it ends up on its back with its four little limbs up in the air like this, and it can't move. It can't do anything. And once it gets into that state, the gases in its abdomen start to swell, and it literally will cut off its circulation. And depending on the heat, within a couple hours or at most a couple days, the sheep will die. And so when the shepherd's talking about the one that wanders away, he's not like, oh, Baba's having fun with flowers somewhere. He's like, if I do not find this sheep that is my treasure, that I care so deeply about, in the next few hours, this sheep is dead. And so there is an absolute urgency in the heart of a shepherd to leave the 99 and go and find, where's my sheep? Where is he? I got to find him. He's going to die. He's precious to me. And and it talks about even in the gospel of Luke, when it shares the same story, it says when the shepherd finds a sheep, it says he picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders and brings it back to the others. Do you know how much a sheep weighs? A small breed is like 175 pounds. A big breed is like 250 pounds. And I mean, let's just do the math here for a second. If I'm picking up a sheep and putting it on my shoulders, what part of the sheep is touching me? All the yucky stuff on the underneath. All that pee and poo and all that kind of stuff is getting pressed with 250 pounds of force into my clothes, my neck, and all over the hair on my head. I don't even know if I'd do that for my own kids. (laughs) But the shepherd will do it for the sheep. What is the picture? This one is so precious to me. I would pay any price. I would do whatever it took that I could rescue it and bring it back home. And the scriptures say that this is how God thinks about every one of us that we are so precious to him. We are his treasure. We are the most valuable thing on earth to him, that we are, he knows our name. He calls us by name and cares for us. He would do whatever it took. He'd take us in all our mess and put us upon himself that he could rescue us. And he sees the danger that we're in. But the scriptures don't just use this picture of sheep. It also talks about this idea of us being like his lost sons and daughters. I can't fully imagine what it would be like to lose a son or a daughter, but I understand the feeling a little bit. Later on, when we lived in China with our kids, one time I took our kids, our three oldest, um, the youngest was a baby, and I took the three oldest to play at this playground that was like in this big walking mall in the middle of this city of like 10 million people in China. And so we go and we play. It's a really cool playground. They're playing and I'm watching the three of them. And an awkward thing happens when you start to have more kids that at some point you cross the threshold where you have more kids than eyeballs. And it's like a little hard to keep track of them. And so I'm watching what's happening. There's Maya, playing, play Eva. There's Jordan going down the slide. Okay, there's Maya, Eva. Okay, little Jordan's on the monkey bars now. There's Maya, there's Eva and I, I can't see Jordan. I stand up from the bench I'm sitting on and I kind of try to get a different angle around the big playground. I can't see him. It's not in the slide. He's not in the tunnels. I start calling out a little bit. Hey, Jordan. Jordan, where are you, buddy? Jordan. I grab my and Eva. Have you seen Jordan at all? They're like, no, we don't know where he is. I'm gonna sit on the bench. Jordan. Jordan. I grabbed a Chinese security guard and I said, I said, hey, have you seen like a little American boy like this tall? He's like, I don't know, help me look. And so he helps me look and we're running and now I'm going to all the stores. And, and, and on this side of the playground is a crowd of thousands of people. On this side of the playground is a crowd of thousands of people and there's all these stores and the malls. So I'm running to all these different clothing stores. Hey, have you, have you seen a little American? Jordan, Jordan, where are you, buddy? Hey, Jordan, Jordan, where are you? Jordan, have you seen a little boy? I'm grabbing people in the crowd. Have you seen a boy? I'm going to the stores, grabbing workers. Have you seen a little boy? And I'm crying out all over the place, and I'm searching. A whole bunch of security workers are looking with me, and we search up and down this whole mall, through the whole crowd, everything we know to do, and we cannot find him anywhere. And I cannot describe for you the feeling of coming to, I did all the searching I can do, and somebody took my son. The absolute devastation of some part of me literally feels like it's dying inside right now because my boy is gone. And I literally just went back to that bench where I started and slumped down. There was nowhere left to look or anything. I didn't know what to do. Finally, after a minute, I stood up. I just tried to look in some stores again to do something helpful. And I went in this restaurant and this old grandpa goes... And I go up the second story of this restaurant and Jordan's sitting on the floor playing with these other Chinese kids. I ran over. I picked them up. I squeezed them so tight. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> Squeeze them tight again. That feeling of absolute devastation. Of there is a part of me that is dead inside. Is what our heavenly father feels over every single one of his lost sons and daughters that hasn't come home yet. And man, that feeling when I saw Jordan's face up there, the relief, the absolute deepest level of joy I've ever experienced in my entire life that I couldn't step smiling even though I was so mad at him. That is what our heavenly father feels every time one of his sons or daughters comes home. And when I get it and I start to understand his heart, it changes me. You know, this last scripture says, God is not willing that even one of these little ones should be lost. He never says, I got 99. Let's call it a day. I I would never say, I got three more kids because we just stopped looking for Jordan, right? (laughs) A father's heart could never say that. I would have torn the earth apart until the day I died until I knew what happened to my son. And our father's heart is chasing after every one of his kids. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord does not want any one to perish, but every one to come to repentance. He's not satisfied to lose one. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, God our savior wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I remember during the last days of that year I was in China, We'd seen so many people come to Christ during that year. I mean, it was just miracle after miracle. I felt like I was living in the book of Acts. I'll tell you about it for two hours another time. But there was this one friend named Gary, who we had met at that very first English corner I was at. And we had spent time with him all year long. And he had just never been open to the gospel. And I remember being in the taxi with Matt on our way to meet with Gary for the very last time before we were going to go back to America. And I remember actually feeling angry with God in the taxi of like, why do I want this guy to get saved more than you want him to get saved? Would you do something in Gary's life? Come on, give us an opportunity to share the gospel tonight. Do something new. Well, please, Jesus, do something. So I got out of taxi and I pulled myself together. We're going to a tea shop to hang out. We were just playing cards and being friends. And as we're hanging out that night, Gary stops in the middle of dealing cards And he looks at Matt and I and he goes, Toby, Matt, how do I become a Christian? How do I start to follow Jesus? So what do you mean, Gary? You never even seemed interested before. And he began to tell us the backstory about a month earlier uh, matt had to buy some basketball shoes and so he was going to this like market area outdoor market area in china for you know chinese knockoff nikes probably or something like that and it was going to buy these shoes and so he's searching all through the thing he finally picks out a of shoes and gary's with them taking them to help him do this process after he buys the shoes they leave the market and they're eating about an hour later matt realizes oh no my backpack He'd had his backpack with him with his digital camera, which was probably like his most valuable possession, and he had set it somewhere in this process of buying shoes in this outdoor market in China and left it, and now it's two hours later. If you've ever been to a market like this overseas, you know that in about three minutes, there is zero percent chance you're getting something back in a situation like that. And so, But Gary's nice, and Gary takes Matt, and they go, and they look at every single store they stopped at. It's nowhere. It's gone. So, Matt goes back to the house that night and tells me about what happened. And he's praying, and he feels the Lord tell him, I'm going to give you your camera back. Go back and check one more time. And so, Matt feels kind of dumb and sheepish because Gary already helped him, but he calls Gary up and is like, Hey, I know this is going to sound weird, but I felt like God told me when I was praying that if I go back one more time, he'll help me find the camera. Would you take me? And Gary's like, No, bro, it's gone. <laughs> And so then he called up Ren, the other guy who got saved, and, uh, and, and says, will you take me? And so Ren takes him to the market. And so they go into the market, and they go to all the stores they've already checked at. And they go to this one store, and they ask about it. And there's this old Chinese grandma sitting on the stoop of the shop. And when they ask about it, she goes, oh. And she walks to the back and comes out, and she's got Matt's backpack. And she gives it to him and Matt rips it open and sees the camera still in there, it's there. He turns it on. The grandma had been playing with it and had taken a video of herself on accident. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's got, he's got the camera, he's just thrilled and happy. And so he leaves and he calls Gary and he goes, Gary, I just got the camera back. I told you, God told me that if I went back and checked, he would give it to me. And Gary's like, whoa. So that night, Gary is with his girlfriend and he's talking to her about what's happening. They're having a last dinner because the next day, uh, his girlfriend is going to have this huge exam that basically determines can she get into graduate school, kind of determines what her future career will be. This is how the Chinese system works. It's like all the pressure of 10 years around this one day test. And so they're having a the last dinner, kind of to celebrate before that. And he tells her this story about the camera being found. And Gary's like, it was impossible. This was a miracle. I'm like starting to wrestle with is God even real? The next day, his girlfriend goes in, and she's taking this huge, incredibly high-pressure exam. She gets like an hour into it and is right in the middle of a test session, and all of her son, her stomach starts feeling terrible. And even though this test is happening right now, she has to call a proctor over and get to a bathroom right now. So they take her out to the thing and get her in the bathroom. She goes in the bathroom stall and has, let's call it an explosive experience. Just absolutely feels terrible, disgusting, is under tons of pressure because she has got back this test right away, the time's ticking away literally on her future. And she looks over and there's no toilet paper in the bathroom. She is like hyperventilating now, doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden she remembers this story of Matt's, of Gary's friend, Matt, who prayed and God gave him his camera back. So while she's sitting on the toilet, she goes, God, I don't know if you're real. But if you're real, I really need you right now. I kid you not. A roll of toilet paper rolls under the stall wall. She takes care of business, goes and finishes the test. And immediately afterwards, calls Gary and goes, Gary, God's real. He's like, what are you talking about? He gave me toilet paper. (laughs) What? And so she tells him the whole story. And so now Gary's at the tea house with us. He's like, God did the miracle with the the, uh, camera. He did the miracle with the toilet paper. He's real. That's different than what everyone told me. Tell me, how can I follow Jesus with my life? And so literally over tea, the very... Last time we thought we were going to see him, Gary gives his life to Christ. We pray with him. The next morning, we get to see him one last time. We baptize him in our bathtub, and that's the last time I've ever seen Gary. And as I was taking the taxi back to my house, my heart was just erupting inside of me because I just was struck at such a deep level again. He is willing to go so far to rescue any of his lost kids. I'm here accusing God in the taxi of why do I want Gary saved more than you? And God's up in heaven going, don't you get it? I've been working for decades to get Gary to this moment right now. I brought you all the way over from America just so you could have this moment. I had to have Matt lose his camera so that I could do a miracle. I had to put a Chinese grandmother in just the right place at the right time for this to happen. And I needed to roll a roll of toilet paper right under the wall just so I could have Gary's heart. I would do anything, I would do anything, I would do anything. You don't want your family saved more than he does. You don't want your friends saved more than he does. He would do anything. There is no length he wouldn't go to. He wants his lost children brought back home. His greatest joy is one of his lost kids is found. And the greatest gift we can give our father is to help rescue his lost sons and daughters. The very first time I was getting ready to share that story about losing my son, Jordan, with a group of people, I wanted to make sure I had the details right, and so I called my oldest daughter, Maya, into her bedroom, and I sat down in the little armchair that was there and had her kind of climb up in my lap. And I felt a little embarrassed about it even as I was doing it, and I was like, hey, Maya, do you remember that time when daddy lost Jordan? And as I was looking at her, tears started to fill Maya's eyes. I'm like, no, no, don't, don't don't cry. Why, why are you crying? He, he's, he's safe. He, we found him. She said, I remember. You told me to sit on the bench. When I saw you running around, I stood up. And I started running around calling out, Jordan, Jordan, where are you? And I can remember, Daddy, I can remember I had tears in my eyes as I was running around, and I could barely see as I was trying to find Jordan and see him rescued. My daughter had so felt my heartbeat. She'd so felt my desperation in that moment that she got up and she was searching with me. And she so was in tune with what I felt about my lost son that she literally had tears in her eyes as she was doing it. I believe that the father today is looking for found sons and daughters who would help him search for his lost ones. He's looking for rescued sons and daughters who would care enough that they would have tears in their eyes as they feel the Father's heart for those that he hasn't been able to rescue yet. And as my heart, even fresh today, is just turned inside out by this, you know, the question erupts in our heart. Okay, Lord, I wanna be a part, I wanna know your heart like that. I wanna give you the deepest desire of your heart and help rescue your lost sons and daughters. What what can I do? What part can I play? I'm not an evangelist. I'm not the person who stands up. and what, what do I do? And I have found that there is one small, simple step that if we will take it, we will begin to become one in heart with our Father and see him do miracles beyond our wildest dreams. And it's simply this, to begin to pray for my family and friends that don't know him yet. You know, I hear that idea, and I can immediately feel guilty. I don't pray enough. I can't can't do it. I'm not talking interceding for an hour. I'm talking, if you just started praying for two minutes every day, this really simple prayer. Lord, today, would you open the hearts of the people around me, and would you give me open doors to share with them? I know what it is to try and jam Jesus in a conversation and feel so awkward to try and do something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to ask him to start opening doors in conversation. If you will pray that simple prayer, you will find people sharing their hearts with you. You will find people that start coming to you to ask you questions about Jesus, and he will open the doors and he will open the hearts if there are sons and daughters that will ask him to. And so I wanna challenge us to just take a really practical step today. If you're moved in your own heart of like, okay, I actually wanna do this, I'm in. I, 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 Lord, I want to have your heart. I wanna join with you in what's most important to your heart. Just pull your, your phone right out of your, your pocket there. Most of us here have a cell phone probably in our purse or our pocket, wherever it is. We don't ask you to do this in church very often, you know? So this is your moment right now. If there's something in you that says, I wanna be a part, of helping them find his lost sons and daughters. I wanna start to pray, even in my weakness in that area. Here's what we're gonna do. I want you to set an alarm on your phone. You get to pick the time, it could be seven in the morning, it could be at nighttime, it could be whatever you think is best. But to just pick a time where an alarm goes off every day, it buzzes in your pocket or beeps at you, whatever you prefer. And when that goes off, I want you to just, for two minutes, ask the Lord for those two things. God, Would you put open hearts in the people around me today? And would you give me open doors to share? That may feel like a scary prayer for you, but if you pray it, it will literally turn your life upside down. And not in a way where you have to force it or you have to be awkward or anything like that. God will begin to do the work because there is no limit to how far he'll go if he can do miracles and roll toilet paper and all that kind of stuff, he will do that same kind of thing in the lives of your family and friends if you will just partner with him by asking. I I really felt as I was driving here this morning that there was another group of people in this room too, which is as I'm sharing today about all this stuff and I'm talking about people who are lost and things like that, you're just having this feeling inside of like, crap, I think that's me. I think I'm lost. I think I'm far from God. And this may be your first time here today or you've been coming for a few weeks or maybe it's your first time back in a long time. And you've been feeling inside that because you know you've wandered, because you know that you've gone astray, that God hates you, or that God doesn't want you back, or that he's hoping you don't return. And I hope this scripture was for you today, that you would understand that when you wandered away from God, if it's even possible, it actually made God's heart love you even more. It says he feels more joy over the one that is found than the 99 that didn't go away. Your wandering actually made the heart of God swell with more love for you. And over all the years of your life, he has been pursuing you and chasing you and wanting relationship with you. And as you're here today, you may have just kind of had it come inside. I'm lost, but I want to come back home. I want to be right with God. I don't want to be far from him anymore. I want to have a relationship with him. If he actually loves me like that, that's the kind of father that I need. And so let's just have all of us just close our eyes right now and bow our heads. If you're in the room right now, I just want to, challenge you to take a really small step to help start a new relationship with god and come back to him if you're here and you're like it's me i've been far from god but it's time for me to come home and you want that would you just lift your hand up in the air right now just for me everyone else's eyes are closed yep the people all over the room right now people all over the room you're coming back home it's not yep all over the room you're coming back home you know you've been far Don't miss this opportunity right now. There's a chance right now. God's calling. He's searching for you. He wants you. He didn't give up on you when you wandered. He wants you. Let's all of us just pray together, renewing our commitment to the Lord, renewing our relationship with him. Just everybody say with me, Jesus, I want to come back home. Jesus, I don't want to be far away anymore. I'm sorry that I wandered. I'm sorry that I went astray, but I'm coming back today. Lord, I ask you, forgive me for my sin. I want to start something new with you today. And so I'm committing in my heart that I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to love you. If you love me as much as Toby says, then you're gonna help me with every step of the way. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All over the room, people coming back home to him today. God is doing something special among us. He loves each of you so much and he loves each of us outside of this room that doesn't know him yet too. Let's start to pray, open doors and open hearts. Pastor Marco.